So, um, with this, why don't we start with a prayer? So, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. So, um, <clears throat> this class is going to be on, really, addiction, depression, and its relationship to religion. Because religion often depresses me. Um, or my other joke is, religion causes me to drink. <laughs> Which is Catholics, is technically true. Um, but here's a, seriously, we have this huge problem in the United States. And the problem is, I, I don't think we've taken out our biggest weapon against addiction and depression. And I think our biggest weapon is spirituality. So let me prove that. So Palo Alto, California, where the blessed rich live, um, here's the odd part. They have one of the highest suicide rates for young kids. That should shock you. So the CDC came in to talk to the parents and admitted they, they did not know what was causing this high suicide rate. And these are the kids who would have received everything. They're the super wealthy, they would have had private tutors, private coaches, the best technology, you know, got their own car. The most money is spent in Palo Alto for public education. Uh, perfect weather, manicured lawns. It's so perfect that, like, in Palo Alto, the businesses have to be set back with hedges because it just looks beautiful. It's not the thug uh, hood city, right? And they couldn't figure out why such a high suicide rate when the kids, they have everything, but they have everything that's really superficial. Remember the story of the Tower of Babel? They come upon this perfect the uh, plain of Shinar, Water, salt, great soil. They have absolutely everything but the one thing that matters, and that is connections. So Palo Alto, not just high suicide rate and depression, but also became a high-use drug center. Why drugs if you have education, you have everything you can offer? So my point being is that People keep thinking, well, with this depression or drug problem that our young, and it's a, mostly our young, suffering, that only if we had education they could change. Prove to me where that's true. Palo Alto has the highest education. If they just, if we could just get, you know, nicer lawns or more tech, or if each kid could have their own car, um, that will not improve the situation. Um, so there's this other article, and the article uh, was called, Why is Living Shorter and Dying Earlier the New Trend? Um, but really, you could have retitled it. Why is life not worth living for our young? And what is the cause of this extreme lack of hope when our kids have received more than my generation has? They have everything. For the first time in 100 years, the life expectancy of young adults has gone down despite the great achievements of medicine. The last time this happened was in World War II 
where you had two things that were killing the youth, World War II and the Spanish uh, flu academic. Um, our young are losing the will to live. Do you know what the second highest cause of death is for kids between the ages of 10 and 14? Suicide. Yeah, you got it. They're losing the will to live. We are 5% of the world's population, and yet we consume 80% of the world's opioids. Um, we're dying because of lack of hope and lack of meeting. An idol is anything you claim to be more important than God. And without the living God, everything is an idol. Drugs, beauty, wealth. And if you notice in the Bible, idols always end up costing you your, your whole life. And so what I want to propose is this idea of connections. Um, that even this idea of home. So let me start with home. Home, the word home, um, does not technically refer to the four walls that you live in. Home refers to the community you live in. Think about this. Early humans, were, we were nomadic in uh, Paleolithic times. We were nomadic. We would travel you know, month to month from place to place. Your home was your community, not your four walls. And human beings are highly evolved social species that need one another. Um, we're the most socially evolved species. Even like a dolphin that's also a social species, you put a dolphin in the ocean alone, it absolutely freaks out. Dolphins, other animals, they have to live in community. Even more so, humans, we need a tribe the way a bee needs a hive. And loneliness is on the rise. Uh, psychotropics are vastly, antidepressants are hugely on the rise. So when I say um, we need a community, I don't mean people, just in the sense of you can be alone in a big city. You could be alone in Times Square and surrounded by people. So what I mean home or connection, I don't mean just more people. I mean honest-to-God con connection. To end loneliness, you need other people, plus you need to be in it together. In Paleolithic times, we survived or died as a community. Human beings, you know, weren't, we don't, alone, we're very vulnerable. But when we're in it together, we survive. So community meant survival and home and happiness. Um, this sense of togetherness. And I, I know I've told you the story, but when I was in South America, uh, I was working with the poor. And these poor peasants, I went with these two nuns and we had a paseo, which is a picnic, and uh, there's all these campesinos, poor, poor, uneducated, illiterate peasants. The part that amazed me is that we're just outside, there's no TV or anything, in the dark, there's a fire, and they would recite poetry, not because they learned it, they would just kind of make it up, and it was this amazing sense of community and beauty and togetherness despite rapid poverty. So the community was home. And spirituality was about your connectedness to others, to nature, to gratitude, and to the divine. That's the connection I'm talking about. And if you're not connected, truly connected to all these things, 
why wouldn't you be suicidal or depressed or turn to drugs? And it, the idea came clear to me in this book called, quote-unquote, Lost Connections. Many of you may not like it, but it was a great book. Uh, just open my, my eyes. And his name is, um, I can't pronounce his name, Joan Hari. Did anybody else read the book Lost Connections? Oh, it is so good, but you wouldn't like it. Um, <laughs> but so I'll tell you, like, I'll tell you a story. So he is this English reporter, writer, always a great thinker. But, uh, well, truth be known, he tells us in the book, Hari, H-A-R-I, it's Swedish. Um, he, ha he was uh, abused as a child. But, um, uh, so anyhow, as a teenager, he had problems with depression. So uh, he goes to a doctor, and this is the prevailing thought in the Western thought. They, his doctor says, uh, oh, it's just broken machinery. You know, it's not your fault, which is true. It's just broken machinery. So we can give you antidepressants. And he thought that was so liberating because oh, it's not my fault. It's just, you know, a chemical imbalance. It's broken machinery. He was put on antidepressants for 13 years. And here's the thing. The antidepressants worked. So he's very grateful. So make sure I make this very clear. I am not against antidepressants. They do work. But there's a problem with them they have decreasing effectiveness. So he's on antidepressants from a teenager for 13 years, except it has decreased, there's other problems with antidepressants, but it has decreased effectiveness. So anyhow, he tells a story where um, he's in Vietnam for this report. And he goes to Vietnam and he has to go into the, I don't know, Das Wilderness. And in Vietnam, he does get an apple, but they use insecticide in Vietnam heavily. So he takes an apple and he washes it off, eats it, and he's traveling to do this interview, but he's getting sicker and sicker and sicker. He does finish the interview, but he then passes out. He's so sick. Um, and they take him to the hospital. And when he goes to the hospital, the doctor asks him, have you had anything to eat? And he says, the, the only thing I ate was an apple, but I did wash it off. And the doctor and the nurses laugh. And he says, why? And he says, well, because um, our insecticides are water-soluble. You had to peel the fruit, not wash it off. So they test him, and yeah, he was getting sick off of insecticide poisoning. And the doctor asked him this question that really got him thinking. But the doctor says, didn't you feel yourself getting sick? And he said, well, yeah, but I just ignored it. And the doctor said, oh, that getting sick, that's your body's way of telling you something's wrong. Brilliant insight. <laughs> and it seems so obvious, but at this point, he's, remember, he's battling depression his entire life. And so he starts to think, as suddenly when the doctor says that, he thinks, wait a minute, is my depression broken machinery or is it's my body's way of telling me something's wrong. And maybe I need to address what's wrong rather than the antidepressants of just covering it up. So at that point, the book starts um, him researching the causes of depression um, and that he realized that uh, the causes of depression 
he needs a wider cure than just antidepressants. That's just too narrow of a focus. And so the rest of the book, he starts to understand that there are biological, psychological, sociological causes for depression. And none of these um, can just be addressed by crude chemical imbalances. That there are social and psychological causes that if you ignore them for a long time, um, it seems, and I like this, biological causes don't even kick in without them. Without these sociological, psychological problems first, then you have the biological problems. And so he said giving people drugs for depression and anxiety is one of the biggest industries in the world. There's enormous funds sloshing around to finance research. Um, and the research is often, this is his words, often distorted, as I learned. Social prescribing, if it's successful, wouldn't make much money. In fact, it would blast a hole in the multi-billion dollar industry. We've been systematically misinformed about depression and anxiety. Um, now, here's the thing, I want to repeat this. He's actually for antidepressants, but not as a single solution. And so he starts researching in the book of, well, what can cure drug addiction and depression? And so he has, and I'm going to call them connections. There's many connections you need. Not one, but many. So I'm going to go over this. The first is connection to meaning which means disconnect from meaningless work. And it sounds kind of strange. What I want to promote to you is that maybe meaning in your life is a form of anti-depression. So there's a story in 20, uh, 2001 of this doctor in Cambodia, and he was in the country when they first introduced antidepressants. And in C Cambodia, they have all these landmines that still haven't exploded. So, uh, oddly enough, this villager goes into the rice paddy to work and steps on a landmine and it blows his leg off. Um, and it's hard work in the rice fields. And, but now the guy has lost his leg, no work. Uh, people can support him for a while, but all he does is cry all day long and refuse to get out of bed. That's classical depression. And so the... Cambodian doctors went and sat with him and realized um, he was depressed and he had real reasons for being depressed. So you know what they, they did? They bought him a dairy cow. And in a few weeks, his depression ended. Instead of working in the rice fields, he was a dairy farmer and he had meaningful work. The local doctors, they did know about antidepressants. Western, a Western doctor would have thought, well... Uh, we'll just give them antidepressants or, you know, St. John Wort or vodka, um, you know, a chemical solution. But their solution was a cow. But the cow was the antidepressants. They understood that there was logical reasons for the guy to be depressed, and the solution may not be drugs, but a new purpose. If you've been raised with a philosophy that depression is just broken machinery, then this story makes no sense. I was depressed, so my doctor gave me a cow. Um, but if you're in pain and distressed, maybe your pain 
makes sense. You're not weak. You're not crazy. It's not broken machinery. You're a human being with unmet needs. Pharmaceuticals may not complete all your needs. They truly may close the gap, um, but what he needed was work. He needed meaning that drugs couldn't give him. Um, if we had been given doctor, if we give doctors one lever to pull, uh, that all they have is drugs, then they wouldn't have offered him that maybe the way out of the depression was meaningful work. Or think about car accidents. Um, when with car accidents, we just didn't choose one solution. After a car accident, we didn't just look at whose fault it was. We invented seat belts and driver training courses and airbags and arrested DUIs. We dealt with a problem in many ways and made sociological changes. Why can't we make sociological changes for an enormously high rate of suicide that is killing our children, drug addictions that is ruining our children, mass shootings? Um, why choose one solution? Why not, like drivers, choose many? And the problem is those solutions, which all the solutions are going to be about making connections, sounds a lot like religion. And here's the thing that shocked me in the book. Hari is an avowed atheist. And yet, even he admits all these connections, I've only got the first one, meaning, sounds too much like religion. Because the other connections are um, meditation, Believe it or not, meditation work, strong sense of community, caring for others, all those things reduces depression. And he said the reason why nobody wants to advocate, and he's an atheist, is it sounds too much like um, uh, religion. Or he tells a story, he's in Europe, uh, I forget where this happened, but um, he's part of this depression talk group, right? And the psychologist doesn't just have them talk about their depression, to be part of this group, and excuse my language, but part of the group is that as a group, we do talk therapy, but then everybody had to volunteer in this place they called Dog Shit Alley. You can imagine why they called it that. Um, and they had to devote and work together as a group, cleaning up this alley and planting gardens. And, you know, they start to work, um, dedicate time, so much time working as a group, cleaning up this alley, and they start to share their stories. And they start to form a tribe and start to solve each other's problems, which took them out of their own story. And he wrote, as the garden started to bloom, so did we start to bloom. They started to take care of others more than just themselves. They had meaningful work. Caring for the garden and caring for others helped them take them out of their depression and drug addictions. When they came together, they started to cure each other's depression. They didn't need more antidepressants. Uh, what they needed was communion. They didn't need to be drugged. They needed each other. They eventually could wean themselves off the medication and fit into a working community. Or in the study in Norway, of this approach, it was twice as effective on the Hamilton scale of measuring depression and pharmaceuticals. Giving people meaningful work was one of the best cures for drug addiction and depression. 
Or, and I know I mentioned this in a homily, Viktor Frankl. Do you remember when I spoke about Viktor? No, okay, only one person remembers. Two people. How many people remember Viktor Frankl? Okay, um, Viktor Frankl was this Jewish psychologist, World War II. He gets thrown in the concentration camp, Auschwitz, and <clears throat> he is brilliant. He starts to study, why did some people survive why are some people surviving Auschwitz and other people are not? And you know what he discovered? Meaning. Those who had a sense of meaning and purpose in their life, they could endure a lot more pain and misery. Isn't that amazing? So after he gets released, that's all his psychology is. It's a great book, Man's Search for Meaning. First connection is meaning. Second connection we need is connection to other people. That's a huge issue. Depression and um, drug addicts tend to be enormously lonely. Shouldn't surprise you. But the problem is, sociologically in the United States or Western world, um, we think of the individual first. What's odd is in the study between Asians and Americans, when Asians look at a picture, they see the crowd first. When uh, Americans see a picture, they look at the individuals first. Um, and the United States, the solutions they want are just individual, private solutions to my problems with a new pill. In the East, the solution is our problems and involve a community. So just taking your care of yourself is not a solution. Connecting with others is a solution. Doing something for others reduces your pain of isolation versus just taking care of yourself actually makes you more depressed. And so this sounds kind of strange. They did this study on the Amish community. And here's the thing. The Amish community, it is a big interconnected community. And in the Amish community, the church rotates from people's house to house every week. Um, and you know, they make this great comment, outside the world, you're always hustling for yourself. In the Amish community, you live for and in and with the community. So the Amish have consciously chosen to slow down. You know, if you could speed across distances and go anywhere you wanted, all you'd end up is further away from other people. You lose a lot by slowing down, but you gain a lot of closeness. So if you could be anywhere in the world at any time, you would actually end up being nowhere near anybody else. So, oddly enough, they did this study because the Amish have a really low rate of depression. Now, as one person mentions, as one woman mentions, the Amish, um, there are these religiously oppressive, outdated notion uh, in the Amish, such as women's rights, right? But a little behind on those. Um, but what they found out is, this, they're interviewing this one woman and said, yeah, we're behind on women's rights. But she says, um, it, I'd be willing to tolerate that versus the loss of a sense of community. Why would you want to be lost in a haze of distractions when you can have a little bit of heaven here? And what she meant is that here she has communion with other people. She may disagree religiously with it being outdated for women, but they have communion. And that's a part like, I use the word communion because as Catholics, that should be a red letter word for you. 
um, we commit ourselves in the Eucharist. And when I say that, most people think Christ, and you're right. The Eucharist is Christ. But we'd also miss the other thing. In receiving communion, we also are making a commitment to be a community for each other. If Christ is the Eucharist, and I receive it and you receive it, then we have to, uh, we become the body of Christ. The one thing, and this is my criticism, of kind of the extreme traditional Catholics, often they go to communion to be with people just like themselves or communion for their own salvation. That actually kind of desecrates the Eucharist. Literally, St. Paul says that desecrates the Eucharist. If you receive the body of Christ and just think of yourself, you've eaten damnation. Likewise, Protestants think that um, it's a very Protestant notion because Protestants think communion is just me and Jesus. Um, I can't tell you how many times I, every week somebody says, why can't I go to communion because I believe in Jesus? But do you believe in community? Do you believe in being part of the body of Christ? Um, so it's just so Western to think only of the individual. Um, so St. Paul says that's uh, a sin. And here's the thing. Um, it's communion with a community that matters. So on sources of happiness, there is a study on whether making a choice, trying to be happy, makes you happier. So logically, you think, okay, now let's say Mrs. McGonagall wants to be happy, so she's going to make all her choices on what makes me happy right now. Guess what? Will she ever get to happy? No. If you just think what makes me happy, you never get to happy. <laughs> you have to give up on that. And so in this Berkeley study, they asked Americans to describe a crowd. Once again, uh, when they described a crowd, Americans only focus on the individuals. Uh, Asians do the opposite. They first make generalizations about the crowd. They see the crowd first. Americans keep thinking to be happy. It starts with me. It doesn't. Maybe it starts also with us. And the problem was we think that things and awards and little marks of superiority will make us happy. Those are our small potential. Our big potential is when we can connect with each other. It's connection with other people that makes us happy. So in another book, uh, The Power of Meaning, the author makes this joke that I think is funny, that if you want to be happy, don't have children. Um, <laughs> They'll end up costing you money, enormous amount of time. You'll worry the rest of your life. Then when you have grandchildren, you worry even more. Um, but like, all children do is bring suffering into your life. No, no, it's true. Um, but here's the odd part. Having children makes you happier. So wait a minute, that makes no sense. Having children brings a lot more suffering in your life, but those people with children test out to be happier. True happiness comes from our connection to other people. But let you know, other people cause most of our suffering. <laughs> that suffering and happiness can stand right next to each other. Um, years ago, there's this woman in my former parish, Diane Oatman, loved her. Um, but after Mass, they asked if we could meet in the day chapel because her granddaughter was heading off to the army. And it was kind of beautiful. They just wanted their granddaughter blessed. 
when she was entering the military. And her father, her mother, her brother, the whole family was there, and they were crying, gave a blessing. Um, and it was kind of beautiful because, in one sense, they're suffering. They're having to let go of their granddaughter, their daughter. But the odd thing is that there is pain there, but there's also incredible happiness because happiness comes from connection. And connection causes our suffering. So happiness and connection are inextricably bound. You never define happiness as being painless. You, you will never find happiness there. You'll find happiness by belonging to a community, a family, a church, um, even if it causes you know, pain. Um, uh, so like, this sounds kind of s- strange, but the only ones who can't feel pain are narcissists. Nar- narcissists feel no suffering, no pain. But you know what else they can't feel? Connection. So hap- narcissists are never, they can never feel happiness because they're incapable of self-sacrificing love. And in the Bible, it describes a human being as somebody who can choose self-sacrificing love. A human being, technically in the Bible, is somebody who lives in a community of love. Uh, an individual, like I know I went over this in Genesis, and you're born ha-adam an earthling. But until you fall in love to the point of sacrifice in a community, you're, you're just an earthling. Once you live in a community of love, then you're a human being. Or the Zulu word for a human being, Ubuntu, means, quote-unquote, I am because of you. There's this whole philosophy of defining the individual as part belonging to each other. Um, belonging to each other is a necessary part of being happy. So, ah, you want to help end drug abuse and addiction? Um, increase our, I guess, sociological needs. Stop thinking as an individual of you, you, you. Think about us. And, you know, you heard the slogan, be yourself, right? You got to be yourself. Well, what does that mean? If you want to be yourself, you have to be part of a community. Now, the be yourself, it's you know, like a shampoo bottles. Use it because you're worth it. Um, have you ever thought maybe we carried this too far, that that's just a, an ingredient for unhappiness? Instead of, quote-unquote, just be you, how about be part of a community? Or be part of a greater communion. Be we, not you. The real path to happiness comes from dismantling our ego walls that separate us and connect with other people. Granted, connection, it costs us a lot of pain. They're called children. But it also brings about communion. Now, political or racial connection will not bring about that. Spiritually, I think it's just the Holy Spirit. Um, Or think of the Catholic Church. There's never been a more diverse collection of human beings united together in human history than the Catholic Church. We spanned every racial, political, economic group for the last 2,000 years. The word Catholic means universal. Our unity is not based on language or anything else superficial. It's based on the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. St. Augustine gives this great homily where he says, you want proof of the Holy Spirit? Look at this parish. We're all, you know, we're all different. Different nationalities, uh, opinions. And he says, and yet we're united in love. 
So don't strive to be the guy addressing the crowd. Strive to be the crowd. Stop living the tiny little life and get connected to other people. How this relates to depression and drug abuse is that um, uh, anxiety and depression is related to lack of connections. That sounds kind of strange, but even with anxiety, you know, you, you can give somebody 10 compliments, but one negative thing happens, and that's all they remember. Um, and so we're designed to worry about fear, but we're designed for connections. Unfortunately, you know what our young have? Facebook connections, Instagram connections. They're not real connections. Um, so uh, they don't know how to live in communion. The lower, the lower one's involvement in community, the higher rates of depression and drug abuse. So we gotta learn how to thrive together. We're the loneliest people in history, survey after survey. Um, the Surgeon General has announced that we're in a loneliness crisis. My point being, we thrive together as a community and we die as individuals. Just as a bee has to live in community, even more so, humans thrive in community. And I know I've mentioned this, but like, uh, the worst thing for your health is isolation. And so they've done this on blood pressure and cholesterol and blah, 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 all these things. You could be eating all the bran you want, but you know what you need most? People. You need to belong to a community. Not just like people. I shouldn't have said that because you, know, you could be in New York and be incredibly lonely. You need connection with other people. Best thing for your health. So my joke is, and this is true, uh, it's better to eat Twinkie with friends than kale by yourself. Um, so much better for your health. So, no, people underestimate the power of connection. So, first one, connection to meeting. Third, Sorry, second, connection to others. Well, that's what we mean by church. Uh, connection to meaning, we have a whole sacrament for that. It's called confirmation. Church, here's a third one. Connection to real values. And disconnect from junk values. Uh, I'll explain what that means. Um, San Pablo City Council did this weird thing where they banned all public advertisements. And in place of billboards. They put up public arts in all these old buildings. Um, and so, think about this. Without the constant barrage of advertisements, what they notice is that people calm down. Because if you get the advertisement, are you beach body ready? Um, you know, it all affects your self-worth. In fact, <laughs> now, just as a thrill, afterwards, Catherine is going to walk the runway in her two-piece. So she's very proud of that. But this sounds kind of strange. You're not going to like this, because this involves a cuss word. But you know what their slogan was? Advertising shits in your brain. And I know that's... But advertising is meant to f make you feel inadequate. They keep telling you that you're not good enough without this product, without spending your money on this thing. Your children will finally love you if you buy this car or these you know, junk values teaches you that to be part of a community, you need this stuff. Yet, we worship the body of Christ. 
that to truly belong to community, you don't need to buy anything. What you need is a hunger for the Eucharist, for Christ, for love. So there's this great story about this financial planner who comes to high school to teach the kids about money management. But he realizes that these kids have this ravenous hunger that they must have the sneakers and the latest Nike t-shirt and the latest iPhone and all these insatiable needs for their social status. And it doesn't matter if they can afford it or the parents can afford it. They needed that to fit into community. And they were angry with their parents when the parents couldn't buy them stuff. Didn't their parents know that they needed these things? Even if the parents couldn't afford these things, um, they'd buy them because their kids were so stressed out. We are a logo-driven society. Image is more important than reality. So the financial planner, his name is Nathan, he thought his job was to teach financial planning to these high school kids. But then he realized he was up against this emotional wall of the need to buy things. Nathan realized that he first needed to discuss why do you need these things that financially you can't afford. So he had them write down um, what they desired most, what they thought was most important in their life. And like one kid wrote down one word, love. Most of them wrote down words like that. And then he tried to make them see that spending their um, money was not connecting them with the value that they said was most important. Um, that the hunger to spend money made them less com connected to the thing that they said was most important. If you want to belong to a community of love, it's not by buying the right stuff. And so, like, the average American is exposed to 5,000 advertisements for, per day. So, how do you think shaping the narrative would be on your core values with this constant barrage of messages that if you need to feel better, you want to be loved, you want to be connected, you have to buy this. Buy, buy, buy until you buy your coffin. People usually buy because they feel loneliness. But once that Amazon package arrives, they're deflated. These are junk values. When these are junk values that control our mind. And studies show that we're more controlled by advertising when uh, people claim that they're not. So don't tell me you're not controlled by advertising. You're less controlled by advertising when you belong to a group. Did you know that? The more you have your social connections, the harder, the harder it is to be swayed by silly advertisements. And yet every study shows that with every year advertising spending goes up, also people spend more on antidepressants. There's very few external needs that we really need. We have a lot of psychological needs, belonging, meaning, love, connection. We live in a world that promotes these external values that can never feed our internal values. You know, infants can recognize a McDonald's sign more than they can recognize their last name. That, that should shock you. No wonder why the young don't feel a need for religion. Because they've been constantly fed junk values. If you only had this status or this thing or won this award, that's all you need. Our faith teaches us that a heart hungry for the body of Christ, that's what really matters. And they did this study on, um, they call the aspirational index, of internal versus external. Is your, the, 
is your aspiration internal or external? Aspiration internal is like the guy who wrote down what he wants most out of life is love. That's internal. If you write down external, that something like, well, the new pair of Nikes. Um, they did this interesting study. People define happiness as dependent upon material things have a higher rate of depression and drug use versus those who uh, define their sense of happiness by internal things. So, wait a minute. If you want to lower the drug rate and depression rate among our kids, maybe we need to teach them or emphasize internal values a lot more than junk values. Who does that? Religion. Okay, so the fourth, and this sounds kind of strange, connection to self. I know that sounds kind of strange. It's a very Jewish concept. Remember to have shalom. You need connection between you and other people. Shalom we translate as peace, but it really means connection. Connection between you and other people, connection between you and God, and connection to you and your environment, and connection to yourself. I know that sounds kind of strange, but most people are disconnected. And they're disconnected usually because of trauma or shame. And research shows that it's not the trauma of abuse that destroys people, it's the shame about the abuse. This one 80-year-old woman um, sounds kind of strange. Before she died, she wanted to talk about her big secret of child abuse. And she said, thank you. I thought I'd die and nobody would know. And after that whole scandal with the bishops hiding child abuse, um, I realized I was really embarrassed. We had this huge abuse scandal that was covered up for years. Everybody did. You know, Boy Scouts, to just covered it up. But... Uh, I was kind of pissed off at the bishops because, you know, they make everybody go through safe environment and legal issues. But you know one thing the bishops never did? How about actually address the shame of abuse? So I remember thinking, oh, okay, I guess I will in my parish. So we're going to hold a retreat on abuse. Now, this is the thing that shocked me in priesthood. You would be shocked in the confessional to find out how many people have been raped. And I'm not just talking about women. Usually men, when they get in their 60s, they'll mention in their confession, their wives would have never known the abuse they suffered as a child. Um, no wonder why they're so angry. Um, so, enormous amount of women have been abused, raped or abused in some ways, and yet, wait a you're telling me the Catholic Church has never had a, a retreat about getting over abuse? So, to be honest, we worked on one in my parish. Um, in giving people to talk about these traumas, it was an antidepressant. We have to expand our definition of an antidepressant as more than just a drug. Maybe it's becoming free from the internalized shame of something that happened in the past. And so an antidepressant can't be solely a prescription. And they did this long-term study on chemical um, antidepressants called the STAR trial from pharmaceutical companies. Yes, if it causes relief, that's great, but it has decreasing effectiveness. Or take obesity. Um, they did this study on obesity and abuse history. And one doctor comes to this connection that there's this 
high correlation between a history of abuse and obese, obesity. So this woman named Susan lost 400 pounds, but then she gained it back. So then the doctor says, asked about that day that she started to obsessively eat. And it was after she was abused. And she said, overweight is overlooked. So this study by Kaiser Permanente said there's a two to three times more likely to be obese if you have a history of trauma. And so the history of trauma is likely for a large group of the problems we suffer of obesity, drug abuse, suicide. So we have to stop asking the question, what's wrong with you? And start asking the question, what happened to you? This history of shame, it drives a lot of addictions and depressions. And so the answer is connection with self. Um, the fifth connection is connection to meditation. Um, and this sounds kind of frame, strange, but the more you meditate, less depression and less drug abuse. Um, you know, that's not going to be popular because meditation sounds a lot like religion. But um, oddly enough, they like you can do if if it was a non-religious, let's say non-religious person. There's meditations you can do that are not religious but it's still meditation. And so Hari gives this example that he's good friends with this other New York woman who he's, she was one of his best friends. And they, they enjoyed each other. They both had a kind of a negative, sarcastic, condescending sense of humor, and she was witty. But she moves to some place called like Ohio. Um, and he hadn't seen her in a year, so she shows up and She's a completely different person, and she's joyful. And that's not the person he knew. So he asked, well, what happened to you? And she says, you know, I got so tired of being negative. I went to see a psychologist, and they suggest that I practice meditation. And the meditation they start out with was simple, sympathetic joys, where you give as a gratitude exercise. What are you grateful for this day? Like St. Ignatius started this 500 years ago. Um, so anyhow, she said, I knew I had changed when um, I was at a stoplight and I saw this couple come out of a church and uh, they were so happy together. And she says, I just saw their happiness and I started to cry because I was happy for them. And she said, years ago, I would have, uh, or a year ago, I would have looked at him and said, you know, he's going to end up bald and fat um, or made some, you know, joke. But suddenly... All I felt was joy for him. So Hari goes on this study of, um, like, it's the opposite of uh, uh, fraud, you know, the joy of seeing other people fail. Um, so anyhow, he goes on this study on uh, the power of meditation. Well, you know, if, you want, if we want to tap down drug addiction and suicide, maybe we should advocate meditation even to the non-religious. No one is an isolated individual. If a baby is left isolated, it dies. We only have the illusion of independence. Um, so we're meant to live in a community. Um, and uh, emotions run through a community. So 
I don't know, why not practice meditation? So there's been this, well, actually started out at St. Mark's, the pastor of St. Mark's when it first started, this groundbreaking, his, Andrew Nurberg was a, a neuroscientist, and he's working on his PhD. He's not religious at all. But he, he does this interesting study, and now they've done a thousand, um, where he puts people in an MRI, and the first one, his, the book he published was called Why God Won't Go Away. And he takes 50 Buddhist monks and 50 uh, Franciscan nuns and just had them meditate. The Buddhist monks did their thing. The Franciscan nuns prayed the rosary. And this is the part that shocked. The same parts of the brain lit up. And like, that should be strange. Now, the prevailing thought was religion was just a matter of programming, that it's just software. You're programmed to think that way. Why, and the title of the book is Why God Won't Go Away. Why is God found in every single culture, in every single time period? It's not a matter of programming. What they discovered is the brain is hardwired to pray. And if you meditate, it has all the effects on your brain that you do end up happier, but you think more with your frontal cortex, you make more logical decisions. Meditating is one of the best things you can do for your health and your brain. So we want to lower addiction and suicide rates. Why wouldn't we advocate uh, meditation? You know why they don't want to advocate med meditation? Sounds too much like religion. Um, a sixth connection is connection to nature. Now I've got to speed through this because I'm running out of time. But um, connection to nature is this. The, what they found out is this interesting study is that uh, your depression rate and your addiction rate and your healing rate, no, addiction rate decrease, more exposure to nature, less exposure to nature, you don't heal as quick. So in a prison, they noticed that the prisoners that had a view of nature, less violence, less outbreaks than ones who had walls. Noticed in hospitals, hospitals that had a view of greenery, um, the patients healed quicker. Um, now, just having a picture of greenery didn't do it. You actually had to have nature. And so this scientifically is called the biophilia effect, that somehow being out among nature, it does lower your depression rate. It lowers, it helps with addictions. Um, that's a connection to nature. And he says the more we live in these walled-off, urbanized societies, the harder it is. The seventh, or sorry, the eighth is biological causes. I'm not going to go over that because, yes, there are some biological causes for depression and addiction. Um, but those aren't written in stone either. But, yeah, there's a connection there. And so I want to promote a ninth one that he didn't promote. And that is we want to help with addiction of suicide and depression connect with religion. All these connections I mentioned, they're found in religion. Connection to others, that's baptism. We're in baptism, we're made the body of Christ. We're commanded weekly to pray together and be together as a community. In the Bible, God does not say keep the Sabbath by you doing something privately. It's always you must gather together as a community weekly. 
uh, the Eucharist calls us to be a better and better community with the divine. Meaningful work, the cow, that's confirmation. We anoint kids to find a meaning and purpose to their life. Um, the first problem in the Bible um, was we were not meant to be alone. And in the Garden of Eden, we we're given work, a purpose for our life. Connection to meditation. Oh, just this last weekend, it said they devoted themselves to the hours, that they would pray morning prayer and evening prayer. Do gratitude exercises that St. Ignatius advocated. You know, in the Catholic Church, we have a thousand medi- different types of meditation, rosaries, psalms, etc., etc. Um, connection to self. I know this sounds kind of strange. We have the anointing of the sick. Um, we try and cure people of shame. Now, granted, at St. Holy Apostles, I had a retreat for those who have been abused, but our church tries to heal what's wrong with people, not cover it up. That's anointing the sick. Or connection to real values. Week after week, we read the Gospels. We have this whole cycle of reading, so over three years, the whole Bible will be covered to you. Um, We try and rid ourselves of junk values. We have a season of Lent where we fast from trying to improve, from stupid things. So, I know this sounds kind of strange. Um, Yeah, I do believe religion, there is a connection. Or, you know, you could, I know I'm talking about depression and drug abuse as uh, being the same thing. I don't think they're the same thing. But I think these nine connections do solve both of them. I mean, think about this. Modern life is like living in a hotel room. It's a Skinner's box where there's nothing to do. You're isolated, there's lack of community. I know I mentioned this, but they did this study on the lack of community, that with each generation, community is falling more and more and more. So years ago, people would go to the Grange and dance. Years ago, what would people do in the evenings? They would gather together and play cards. Now, and then when I was growing up, you'd gather around one TV and have to be forced to watch, which you didn't want to watch. Um, but we did it together. Now everybody's on their phones in their own rooms, isolated. <coughs> why, why wouldn't you be depressed? Um, why wouldn't you turn to drugs? And so my point being is that, going back to this, Hari realized when the doctor says, didn't you feel your body getting sick? That's your body's way of telling you something's wrong. And so Hari comes to this conclusion, and I think he's right. Maybe depression is the right physical response to an abnormal way of living. Maybe his solution shouldn't have been drugs. Maybe his solution needs to be all these other connections that he just never tried. He didn't want to try. So now he does his meditation. He connects with other people. He connects with biophilia. He's working on his own trauma. Maybe all those connections... um, are the right response. Does that make sense? Maybe our society that literally is dying, high suicide rate, high drug abuse rate, when are we gonna stop putting solutions into, well, maybe our kids need more things or more iPhones. Maybe they need a disconnect from junk values, uh, connect to what's real. So I know this sounds kind of strange. My solution is real connection, which comes with religion. 
The word religion, in case you didn't know, it basically means relationships. It comes from like the ligaments in your, like that holds your knee and you know, your bones together. That's what the word religion means. It's connection. Hello, this is Father Len McMillan. I'd like to take a moment to thank you for listening to our podcast. If they've been a blessing to you, I'd also like to invite you to prayerfully discern supporting the podcast financially. Your generosity would help support the ongoing production and distribution of the podcast. If you'd like to make a donation, you can simply click the link in the podcast description. Be sure to tell us your donation is for the podcast in the comment section of the submission form. Again, thank you for your support as we seek to share the good news of the gospel. May God bless you for your generosity.